So um, this is uh, Tony Prescott, Paul Verschuur, with Leah Krubitzer, who uh, was one of the speakers at our summer school, and we we're really pleased that you were here. And um, want to talk a little bit about some of the core elements of your of your work, essentially, so we can understand this a little bit better. And one of the starting points, at least in, also in your presentation, was this whole idea that a more complex brain gives you also more complex behavior. And you've been spending quite some time to study down the complexity of, of these brains. So can you, can you tell us a little bit of how you, how you study brain complexity and how you see this also related over different, different species? Right, so when I first gave my presentation, I, I, I tried to make a point of saying what I thought complexity was. And, and, and today Olaf gave a different definition of complexity um, as this larger property that emerges and cannot be understood by its smaller elements. And, and I think that's really true um, in terms of brains and brain evolution for certain. For me, at least in terms of what I'm studying, I just meant many parts, many interconnected parts. So, And I, and I think that's keeping it fairly simple that if you have simply organized brains, they have fewer parts with fewer interconnected nodes. If you have larger brains like monkeys or humans, they have more parts, in particular the neocortex, that are that have more um, interconnections. So the hard part is saying, okay, so what are those more parts with the more interconnections by you? What is the behavior? At the end of the day, what, why would something like that evolve? What is, what is being selected for? Why not stay simple? It's going to be um, metabolically less less expensive to run. Um, usually, you, you can have a, a body that doesn't have as, as many uh, or as large a body. You don't have as large a body, or maybe as complex a receptor organization. So, what I'm trying to figure out is how you go from a simple form to a more complex form, and then ultimately what that will buy you. So, one way you can do that is to, as I said, you can examine. A variety of different species neocortices and, and count the parts or subdivide those parts and, and see how they're interconnected and see how the, that number and those interconnections compare to more complex brains. And then the other way, and what I was trying to um, really talk about towards the end, and then I got I sort of rushed it, was the developmental stuff or the manipulation stuff. So what happens if I manipulate those parts and those interconnections? Um, First of all, can I test my theories of evolution um, by manipulating what I think is being manipulated um, during development? And ultimately, and I didn't talk about this very much at all, if I make those manipulations, what does that do to behavior? So what if I do make more parts? What if I take a simple brain and I add more parts and more connections? What does that buy you? I mean, so how is my brain, how is the brain of a human different from a, a chimpanzee? We know it's bigger. It may have more parts, it may have more interconnected parts, but what is the fundamental difference in terms of behavior? What, how does that generate what we consider humanness versus chimpanzee-ness? So ultimately, that's what I'd like to get at, and I, I think that's where you'd like to go too, is to, is to take these sort of things that you know about the structure of the brain and a little bit about the function at a, at a smaller level of organization and then try to figure out what it means for behavior. And then... I'm, I'm probably rambling right now. No, no, you're doing very well. It's all very <laughs> coherent. Um, and, and then at a larger level, and I don't think this is something people think about very much at all, and I think we really need to think about it. And of course, I talked about brain and body. You have to put those two together. We're not working. I mean, most people stick an electrode in the brain, and they listen. They don't look at the brain. They don't really know about the animal. They don't know about the animal's behavior, um, naturally, how that animal behaves. So, so the brain-body environment is very important, but a huge portion, at least of the human environment, is how the brain interacts with other brains and how brain interaction can affect developing brains. 
to make it fit within that particular society. This is something that I think humans, this is one of the things that makes humans very, very different than other animals, is the effect of the social environment. Sure. Uh, ultimately, on, on the brain, we can make brains. We, we can change, not just nature versus nurture, we can sort of change this general cognitive thing floating around up there. We can change the structure of the brain. We can change the number of parts. We can change the size of cortical fields. We can change the connectivity. Um, and we can dramatically alter the behavior without doing anything to the genome. We can do it all during, during the time that that brain is unraveling within that context. I think because we can change the brain so dramatically, there are a number of aspects of brain organization that could masquerade as evolution when in reality they're simply context dependent and the context in which they unraveled is stable over yeah, 10,000 years or so on and so forth. Okay, so now I really am right. No, this Go is ahead. good, but, but doesn't this sound a little bit as, as if you're saying that, that uh, ontogeny is, is recapitulating phylogeny, that, that, that I have like almost as if you have these different modules that you can sort of, that, that come out over phylogeny and that you can, during a development, can sort of recombine and reinsert. No, well, why is no, that the wrong I'm, interpretation? I'm speaking mainly just now of the neocortex. I'm saying that for a given genotype, there's a normal distribution of potential phenotypes that could unravel. The norm is set by the context, which is the social context in which that brain is unraveling. If the social context changes to this end of the distribution, you can very easily... Now, there is going to be some genetic component to that, and you pull those genes along very slowly. People think major change is occurring um, very abruptly by mutations, when in reality, you're, you're, you're pulling populations. So I have some normal distribution of a phenotype that is reflecting some normal distribution of the social environment that's also, the aspects of that phenotype are also genetically determined. So there's some normal distribution of genes accounting for a number of different characteristics. And you, you, they're all lined up now on the center of the distribution. I can pull that distribution socially, for example, off to one side, and over generations, you're going to get genetic changes that are going to mirror that. Because there are portions of the population that are at this end of the distribution in terms of um, genes encoding aspects of that characteristic. So it's, it's not necessarily there's a sudden mutation and all of a sudden the population is here. You can pull it. You can pull it along, you can pull it along this continuum, um, keeping a similar genotype. And ultimately, I guess, I guess a huge question that I didn't talk about and, I'd and would like to address at some point in my life, and I have at least raised the question, how do these activity-dependent alterations to the phenotype, and let's just say socially driven, or in terms of just the all, you know, complex patterns of physical stimuli that we're going to call a social system, ultimately, how do those changes to the phenotype become genetically encoded and, and evolve? That's, that's huge. So it almost sounds Lamarckian, but it's not. Mm -hmm. am, I, am I making any sense here? Yeah, for sure, yeah. Well, then... <laughs> You're looking at me like I'm nuts. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, no, he always looks like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I've got lots of kind of more simpler questions, probably, uh, but Good. they may not seem that simple. So um, they might put you on the spot a little bit. That's okay. So um, do you uh, have a, as a strong hypothesis that animals with more cortical areas are necessarily going to have more complicated behavior in some sense. What I think is that you can have, I think animals that have smaller bra brains can do extremely complicated behaviors. They just can't do as many of them. So if you look at something like a star-nosed mole and, and the way it can work those little, those little follicles of its nose and how fast and what they can detect and how rapidly they can detect it in terms of the mechanosensory system, way better than what humans can do with their fingers. 
and they do that really well, and it's really complicated. So I'm not suggesting that if you have a small brain, you can't do complicated things. It seems as if you have a larger brain with more parts, you can, you can do complicated things, and you can certainly do maybe more things better than just a single thing really well. Does right. that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. And that's usually what you see with a lot of tiny brains, like an echolocating bat. It's a very tiny brain. But that auditory system, they can do they can do things with their auditory system that we, we couldn't even imagine. So the echolocating abilities of, of bats and the way that, that, that auditory cortex is organized is really, really complex. The brain is small. They don't have 100 fields, they, but they have several that are highly specialized that, that allows them to do really, really complicated behaviors. But is it a complexity within a common plan? It does. Yeah, it's like it's a specialization within a common right. design That's of a right. brain. That's right. And and from your research, what is kind of the original mammalian brain like compared to? Okay, so are you able to to, to say yes, something about that? I do. I mean, I feel like we could say it fairly well. Um, so you have you have fossil records, and that's great because it gives you information about the what the overall size of the you know, early mammal brains look like. They were tiny. Um, it doesn't tell you a whole lot about what the, it doesn't tell you anything about what the cortical organization is. It tells you where the rhinal sulcus is. So you know the proportion of the, of the brain that's the neocortex and the proportion of the brain that's piriform cortex and olfactory bulb and so on. So that's good. It gives you this general lay of the land. The first mammal had really, really tiny neocortices. We don't encounter any animals that have really tiny neocortices that have hundreds of cortical fields. Um, comparative analysis um, demonstrates, as I said in my talk, a common plan of organization likely to be inherited from a common ancestor. Even if you don't seem to use those fields like visual cortex in a blind mole rat, you still have them. Visual cortex has gotten really small, but those nodes are still there. So I would say the first mammal probably had five to ten cortical fields. I mean, other people might argue that no, no, they had ten to fifteen, but it's somewhere in that range. I would say they all had primary visual cortices. I would say they probably had secondary areas. And they may have had a little cortex around those areas um, that was multisensory, multimodal, something like early, what we might call early posterior parietal cortex, but I wouldn't say that's homologous. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think that would, be, that would be my inference based on what we know from extant brains. I should say something that's really important, that, that there are you know, wives' tales going on, going on in every area of science that we, we think we know, oh, this, this is absolutely true, but there's absolutely no evidence to support that, and I think this is very important. There's this wives' tale or this sort of general understanding that primary areas evolved first and then secondaries and third areas. There's absolutely no data to support that because the comparative evidence, especially from animals like monotremes and marsupials, demonstrate that primary areas were there, but so were other cortical fields as well. And in fact, there are people who have theories that things like this general multisensory cortex was present in the first mammals, and that primary areas are maybe newer and more specialized, like V1 in, in primates is highly modular, highly specialized, highly distinct. So, so there's no there's no real evidence. And they say, well, no, well, primary areas get. Um, input from primary nuclei of the thalamus or primary sensory, but, but that's circular. You're, you know, it's primary because it's getting input from primary sensory nuclei. So, so I think that I, I think we know a little bit about what the first mammal brain looked like. But in terms of how fields were added and which ones were, came first, there's absolutely no evidence, and and that's important because. We all think about hierarchical processing, especially for visual cortex. There's V1, then it goes to V2, then it goes to V3, or an MT, and then you have feedback and feed forward. 
when fields are added, most evidence indicates that they're probably plopped in the set that they're not added hierarchically. You know, you may have something in bet, you know, plopped in between V2 and MT, for instance, like a V4. So you're, so that does affect how we think about how the brain processes mm-hmm. information because that totally sort of tears apart the hierarchy idea a little bit. Um, yeah, so, in the, but in that sense, you, you distinguish the sheet, which would be, let's mm-hmm. say, the physical substrate, mm-hmm. and then you have the field and the module. Mm-hmm. So, could you maybe clarify these terms a, a bit better, and, and then also maybe show, if, because now the field is more this dynamical notion, right? It can emerge in some sense, be inserted in, it is. in the I, sheet. So, how, how should I think about absolutely, this? Absolutely, absolutely. A cortical field is not, a cortical field is a process. It is not a static structure. It, as I said in my talk, when, when I'm looking at these brains, I'm capturing a frozen, a frozen frame. But it is dynamic within the life of an individual, and it's really dynamic in species over time. So the cortical field is this continuing process or this change, and, and so it's very dynamic in development. So how I define a cortical field in development is usually by patterns of gene expression. There, there's the, this is where V1 is going to kind of turn out, and this is where S1 is going to kind of be, but it's not there. Um, it becomes more restricted and more restricted and more restricted, but even as, as an animal ages, so then I can find, I can define V1, I can define S1 in some of these different fields. But even in an adult phenotype, we, those, those maps are still, they're still constantly floating. I mean, you can get expansions and contractions of map based on experience, based on skilled learning. And in some ways, this has to be so. You may not be getting major full-scale sprouting of connections, but you're, get, you're constantly getting this, this changing in synaptic waiting um, on, on a, on a second-by-second, minute-by-minute, day-by-day, year-by-year basis so that your brain, your cortex organization this, this morning is different than your cortical organization this afternoon. Not, not by lots. I mean, you're not a different species. But you're getting this jittering of maps on, a, on a, all, all the time, constantly, constantly changing based on the immediate sensory experience. But I will not be able to insert a new field. No, 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 no. However, what I will say is that in terms of the static nature of the neocortex, that I stick to primary fields. I think they are much more static um, and much more constrained than things like posterior parietal cortex and and, and, and infratemporal cortex, for example. Um, I think there's something that might be a little bit different about those the, that those general chunks of cortex. And maybe this isn't very good support for that idea. Part of it's just my gut, just from looking at lots and lots of animal brains. Um, but if you look at the, the good imaging studies in humans or people who are looking at these regions in human cortex, those are the regions of the brain where people have the most argument about here's how it's organized, this is what I think. And I think that they may be more susceptible to experience than things like primary ears. You can't get rid of primary ears. You can be blind at birth and you still have a V1. You can alter, obviously alter connectivity so that a lot of your visual cortex is now taken over by your somatosensory system or your auditory system. But, but as we define V1 architectonically and by patterns, you can't get rid of it. Posterior cortex and infratemporal cortex, or at least aspects of those, those, those fields, I think are, are more likely to be, those maps are expanding and contracting and changing it. Large, in a bigger way than, than primary fields. Am I, am I rambling? Well, when you say you can't get rid of it, but what you're saying really, though, because you also have in your talk, uh, you presented quite a lot of data about the equipotentiality of cortex in uh, a very young animal. And, and uh, what you're actually getting when you're saying you can't get